0: thinking about buying or selling a home in 2023, and you're like, I, I don't even know where to begin. I have a 2.75% interest rate on in my current home. Can I transfer that to a new home? Or would that be assumable for a new buyer? Or I have all my equity in my current home. What do I? How do I get that to my new home? And can I buy and sell... Or can I do it all at once? Like, what does this all look like? Or maybe you want to keep your property as an investment property. I am asking all the questions that you want to know to one of our favorite loan officers, Jason Trout, owner of JMT Mortgage. And he's dishing out all the goods, everything you need to know to successfully buy, sell, whatever you choose to do here in 2023. Let's dive in. Okay, Bus Bench Babes, today I have a guest that you have heard of before, and by popular demand, we're having him back because everyone loves to know what's happening in the mortgage business. So we have Jason Trout, the owner of JMT Mortgage. He's a local mortgage guy here in the Twin Cities that we love working with. So welcome, Jason. Thank you for being on the podcast with me today.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to.
0: Yeah. Okay. So when you're not when you're not doing mortgages and you're not helping people find money to buy houses and refinance, what yeah. do you do for fun?
2: What do I do for fun? Well, I've got uh, three boys who are very active in sports. Um, that seems like it's always on my mind, always on the uh, calendar. You know, before I schedule anything, I always check my calendar on my phone, you know, continuously to make sure I'm not double booking and that things uh, work out well for, uh, you know, carpooling and games and tournaments and things like that. That's probably my top priority. Um, Otherwise, uh, you know, working on the house, working on the old Trans Am, or uh, I do a bit of uh, paid on-call firefighting for the uh, city of Victoria, um, which I've done that now for about eight and a half years. So, yeah, No, no, uh, no free time, but, you know, we love it that way also.
0: And you didn't mention your beautiful wife.
2: You like, didn't ask about that. I wife. mean, uh, for fun. I don't know. I mean, how do I love that together <laughs> with fun? <laughs> being, being, being married seems You're like date fun.
0: nights? What's that?
2: Yeah. 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 That's, that's all good. No, that all comes together. I guess after 17 years of being married, um, you know, you, you kind of forget about that with the throes of, uh, being as busy as we are with, uh, everything besides work and stuff. And my wife's name is Lane and she is, she's working beyond uh, full time. She's upstairs. We both work from home. So she uh, is upstairs. She told me you're taking a mental break right now from event planning. <laughs> yeah. We all you always have those. your
0: hands full with all the sports.
2: Yeah, yeah. for sure. I,
0: mean, I for sure do. Yeah. Well, one of the big reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast is that, All the buzz this year, like ever since rates started going up last year in June, everybody wants to talk about interest rates and what they're doing, where we think they're going. Um, And then let's just, I have a whole slew of questions like, you know, ask, ask the expert. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just going to ask you all the things. How does that sound?
2: Yeah, fire away. I, I think I should be uh, ready to go. I, I, I usually shoot from the hip anyway, so it's better off to not have uh, uh, questions planned out.
0: <laughs> a big script ahead of time?
2: Yeah. I, I've got a piece of paper and some pen right. here, just in case I need to take some notes for anything, you know? <laughs> always got to be prepared. No, you'll for be fine. There,
0: you'll be fine.
2: Yeah. So, I know. Yeah. Whatever you want okay, to talk about. so literally
0: the burning question of the hour is interest rates i mean they've been a little bit flat here for like the last month or so but where do you see their where do you see them going what do you see them doing this year
2: you know from the research that i've seen i mean we all know how crazy this world is and the markets are so just you know ever changing and you know just evolving um, I really, really, yeah, haven't seen a lot of changes. I guess in the past, you know, year I've probably seen interest rates on a thirty-year fix, which is my most popular product. Um, I've seen those swing from as low as you know what three, four percent. That seems like you know a, a lifetime ago already on the low end, up to uh, as high as about seven percent. Um, but they've been been around that six percent to six and a half percent range here over the last couple months, you know, where I haven't seen a lot of change. Um, I feel like there's just a lot, a lot of external factors, of course, that are playing in on where the interest rates are, Mm -hmm. what they're going to do. You know, ultimately, I am hopeful that they're going to be going down some this year. That's, you know, I like to lead with a positive right there, is just to say, you know, I've heard they may go down. You know, they're possibly slated, you know, depending on what you read. And, of course, you can't always believe uh, believe everything that you uh, hear on on the uh, Internet. But, you know, it's a lot of blogs that I read and just news articles that I'm following and talking to people like yourself, Beth. You know, you and I banter back and forth. We talked for, I think, an hour last week about, you know, what's going on in the market and what's the interest rates going to do and what, what are they predicted to do. I mean, I feel like they they may drop down. I've heard maybe as much as maybe a percent here, you know, from where we're sitting in 2023. Although I just don't know. I don't feel any confidence really of like, okay, they talk about that, but when would that happen? Is that going to, you know, that still may be a lag on when the interest rates mm-hmm. may actually, you know, take a little bit more of a dip into say like the the low fives or the mid fives, you know, I mean, to me, I kind of feel like the mid fives on a 30 year fix, maybe a little bit more realistic. Um, But again, there's so many external factors I had actually uh, printed off something here. I'll just look at that. That's like the economic calendar for the month of May. And we all know that uh, the feds met yesterday, like they do, you know, typically, and they raised the fed rate another quarter percent. And I think the majority of people, in the know kind of felt like that was going to happen anyways. So, you know, the mortgage mm-hmm. rates, they felt like they, that for like the 10th time in a row, the feds were going to raise the fed rate and uh, they ended up doing it. They raised it another quarter percent. The feds are trying to desperately slow down inflation. And this is one of their biggest moves on that. Again, you know, the fed raising the fed rate is not a direct connection to the mortgage rates. Like my mortgage rates did not go up or down really yesterday. Uh, but, um, they really just, you know, they anticipated that and they're hopeful that things will, you know, change for the better, but it may be still a lag. It could be a month. It could be another two months off, depending on so many more things. I mean, still the, the war, as we still talk about, you know, um, happening with Russia. I mean, the bond markets, it's a huge, huge, you know, determiner of what happens with interest rates. I mean, stocks and bonds, yes, but if you got a lot of money moving in and out of bonds quickly, you may see kind of the fluctuation with some of those interest rates. So it's crazy.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I saw an article at right after the Fed had raised the interest rate from um, one of the like I think it's the chief economist from Nar, and he's like, "Well, it was something like something to the effect of like, while it was expected, it feels unnecessary for that. You know, this most recent quarter rate hike." And I'm like, "Well." Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's doing what they want it to do. But I think we're all, we all could use some little reprieve with the rates, but it doesn't seem to be slowing buyers down. I think buyers last year were like, Oh, Whoa, Whoa, we're not going to buy a house. And then now they're like, okay, this is just sort of the new norm. And we have buyers competing in multiple offers left and right. And they're like, we want, we still want to buy a house because we need to buy a house.
2: Right, right, hundred percent. Yeah, from what I see, is that the the buyers now the new norm has sunk in, and they don't seem to be yeah. they don't seem to be like um, scoffing at the interest rates where they're at right now because you and I have done this long enough that we know this is where they were twenty years ago or higher, and uh, you know, yes, it's up on the high side, mm-hmm. but you know, housing is still affordable. Um, It still uh, is better than renting, sure, a heck of a lot better than renting, um, making somebody else rich out there. And uh, yes, this is uh, one of those things of, you know, it's a higher interest rate, but you can always have the ability to refinance, you know, because I think about my first house that I own. That's what we just keep Uh trying
0: to tell our buyers.
2: right. Right. You know, I mean, I, I love the saying, and I, I think I use it every time I talk to someone who wants to get pre-approved by, uh, you know, a house is these days, as I say that cliche saying of, you know, um, marry the house, date the mortgage, because it seems like it just holds, you know, more and more true. Like the first house that I bought in 2002, I bet I had refinanced four times before 2009 for, for a multitude of reasons, you know, for <laughs> changing the loan program from an arm to a fixed, to taking a cash out, to rolling like two loans into one, like paying off a home equity loan, paying off a first mortgage, you know, or just taking advantage of lower interest rates just to refinance again right there. So, you know, it's, it's not the end of yeah. the world that, that if you get a higher rate when you buy your house, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, hopefully that rates will come down and you can be able to refinance if you buy and you've got a rate in the sixes, you know, it's not forever. Yeah.
0: Okay. Help us understand. <clears throat> I think the you know, we, there's a lot of newer agents that listen to this podcast and, you know, I feel like I have enough information to be dangerous because I was in the mortgage business for years, but yeah. help us understand. And for the people that are listening that perhaps aren't in real estate and mortgages, like how is, um, how is a loan priced? So like a buyer comes to you and says, hey, Jason, I want to buy a house. I've got a 5% down payment. Uh, You know, I want to buy a $400,000 house. Like how how is my interest rate calculated when you and I are meeting and I want to buy a house?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So number one, I'll I'll clear the air. It doesn't matter if you're self-employed or if you're an employee of a company. You know, there's there's no discrimination. There's no different uh, adjusters for that. So the, the, the playing field is very level to start that out. Now, the next thing is, is that, you know, when I take an application for basically someone who'd be in pre-approved, typically I can knock that out in about an hour. So it's the application, the credit report. I'm kind of painting a picture for myself and a potential underwriter to send your file to. So what comes into play, what you're asking specifically about is when I'm looking at your overall picture, it's again going to be your down payment. Okay. How much are you putting down? Are you putting 5% down? So now you're financing 95% or otherwise that would be like 95% loan to value, or are you doing 20% down? And then, you know, you've got a 80% loan to value. So that, you know, that's the big thing is your loan to value for one. Um, number two would be um, your credit scores. So your credit scores are going to be the number one thing. And I actually now have kind of restructured my pre-approval process to, I do not specifically talk about the current interest rates. Or if you don't put 20% down, you know, you more than likely would have to have, you know, PMI on a conventional loan that's a private mortgage insurance. I don't, I don't quote rates or the monthly PMI until I have your credit scores pulled. Because your credit score is going to be the number one factor as to, you know, what's going to drive the interest rate behind everything. That's that's it. So loan to value. Credit score has nothing to do with anything of how how good looking you are or the color of your skin or any of that. It's just strictly a couple of those big factors for starters.
0: And then so what does that look like? Just so do you have like base pricing and then there's adjusters for these things like talk through like the, the yeah. nuts and bolts of that.
2: Yeah, there, there are. There's definitely adjusters. So I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. If I was going into a website and I was going to price your loan right now, Beth, let's say that you were going to buy an owner-occupied property where the purchase price was 400000 I know that would be one fact. I know you're going to put, say, 10% down. I know that fact there. Your credit is good enough and uh, it makes sense for you to do a conventional loan versus an FHA loan or You know, those are probably the two big ones that I see. If you're not a veteran, well, you're not going to get a VA loan. So that's kind of off the table. But what I'm going to be doing is I'll put it in there. um, I'm going to put in your income, your income that, you know, I'm estimating at what the underwriters are going to accept as your qualifying gross monthly income. Huge part there, your gross. You know, the underwriters qualify off of your gross income, not your net income. So I put that in there as one of the factors. So I put in your zip code of uh, where you're looking to buy. Um, I put in there different types of programs. Are you doing, again, like I said, conventional, FHA? Are you a first-time home buyer? That's one of the things right there that I'll put in there. And so when I enter in all that data into my lender's wholesale pricing engine, and then I click submit. It spends around the universe for a while and then comes back and it spits out you know, a rate sheet. And basically it's a rate sheet that has a rate stack. And say that rate stack would say, okay, here's the interest rates, (coughs) excuse me, that you can offer uh, for today. And it might be from 4.75 on the low end um, all the way up to 7.625. And that's actually one of the things with the anti-steering disclosure I have. I have to show you the range of interest rates of what I could lock you in that day When I go to lock you in now, of course, you're not going to pay. Most people aren't going to pay to buy the rate down to 4.625 or they're not going to take the higher rate of seven point, you know, 4.75 or, uh, you know, 7.625. You're going to take something more like in the middle. Maybe you're, you know, looking at like the 6% or six and a quarter. Again, depending on that income and all the adjusters that kind of come with those facts. So that, that's what I'm looking at. I put in all that data in there and I don't have to go through like we remember you and I used to have to do with a highlighter and we'd print off a rate sheet and we do all the adjusters mm-hmm. and we would add and subtract. It's all done for us right now. Thank goodness technology has uh, improved and they make it easy for me to price a loan out. Then I can compare those against different lenders that I'm signed up with to figure out who has the best interest rate for your scenario and also who's going to have like the lowest closing costs that I can come up with. Sound good.
0: So just to clarify for anyone that's listening. Yeah. yeah, Like Jason's a broker when that means that Jason has business relationships with several different like big national lenders. And so then once he talks to you and decides what lender is going to be best for you, then that's, he knows where he's going to place your loan based on, you know, what's going to give you the best pricing or whatever, what loan program meets your needs the best. Pause for a second. Yep. Uh, versus if you were to just go directly to a bank, they only have their bank product to sell. And most credit right. unions only have their credit union product to sell. So there yeah. are advantages of working with a broker because he has access to more loan programs, more loan products and varied lenders, which is really cool.
2: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to say that brokers are better. How about that? There, there's, there's
0: I think so. Yeah,
2: I think so. No. I, I live, live, eat, and breathe this stuff.
0: So when you're talking to a buyer and they say, well, I've talked to this bank and the interest rate they quoted me is six and a half and you're quoting me six and a quarter. What, why do different lenders have different interest rates? Let's debunk this myth. Because yeah. people think that, oh, well, you know, if they work with this guy, then they're, they're paying money to buy that rate down. Explain how that actually works.
2: Yeah. So a lot of times, um, maybe you've got a company that is, um, maybe they're a broker, maybe they're a correspondent lender, maybe they are a, um, a bank, you know, so a, um, they have a lot more brick and mortar to pay for. Let's say that, Right. A lot of times they will have um, more expenses is what I'm getting to. I'm alluding to the expenses of, you know, someone like myself, that's a wholesale broker and I am the president. So I get to, I get to determine what interest rates that I want to charge my clients um, versus someone else who has got more expenses and they've got a boss that is saying, well, look, the company needs to take the first, one and a half points of uh, compensation, and then the the uh, loan officer will get what's left after that, depending on the the uh, comp level that is chosen with each bank, broker, or correspondent lender. You know, so what I probably am guessing that I see out there, and I I seem to feel like I have some of the lower interest rates, you know, comparably uh, in the market, is that. My comp level is going to be different than a lot of other lenders or loan officers can offer out there. Now, that's probably the first thing right there. Um, I also do have the ability to either go with no origination loans and just have the bank pay me, or I can do you know origination points. Like let's say I charge a point, a point and a quarter as origination points and then you're almost guaranteed to get a lower interest rate you know from me than anybody else out there but so that's kind of the the gist of it of what it is is i have i have some of those options that as the president that not i feel like everybody else has or if they do have the options a lot mm-hmm. of times they won't exercise it you know i will not mention any names of here of other you know of my competitors But I know that some of them set their compensation at the highest level and therefore their interest rates are higher. They will tell you that, oh, no, that doesn't seem possible that, uh, you know, this person could have lower interest rates than us. But you don't understand that you don't see that kind of information on the back end of the pricing that is baked into the interest rates of what they see and what they show to their clients. So, so in
0: essence, you're saying loan officers are making money based on how they price a loan and you are just choosing to pass more additional savings onto the client because you have less overhead and yeah. you run a more streamlined business yeah. versus some of these big box banks. Yeah. I
2: don't have a loan processor. I am the loan. Yeah. Processor.
0: I think a lot of people don't understand that.
2: Yeah. Um, so I cut out the middleman processor right there, which saves money. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have a processor on salary that I have to pay, you know, 30 to 50 to $60,000 a year to uh, process my loans. I can do it myself because I have been so hands-on for all these decades of originating mortgages. And it's just second nature to me. And I, I would prefer to have that anyways, because that way I have my, my hands on the file and I know exactly what's going on with your purchase file or refinance file at all times. It makes it super easy for me to have that and just it's part of my my process and my system I've developed where a lot of other companies will have internal loan processors. Um, And those, those loan processors have to be paid. Those loan processors, they get a salary, they get a 401k, they get the benefits that come along with that where I can cut out all that additional cost and offer lower interest rates because it's just me versus ABC Mortgage, you know, in Minneapolis that, uh, you know, charges higher interest rates because they have so much overhead to pay for. Mm
0: -hmm. I love how hands on you are. And I feel like that really adds to your level of customer service. Yeah, and thanks. you're like, you're just an always an awesome communicator. And yeah, you literally know everything that's happening in the transaction all the time. And that's yep. what I love.
2: Yeah. Yep. It works out great. And the reason is, is that I, I originally well, and, and process my loans. Let me just interject this about processing is, you know, I worked for two brokerage shops before I started JMT mortgage back in January one of 05. And I had loan processors that worked for those companies and they were not only processing my loans, but they were processing every other loan officer that worked at that company, their loans. So I I never felt like my loan files got as much attention as they needed. So I still felt like I was somewhat babysitting my files, even though I was giving away some of my compensation to a loan officer who was doing the best that they could. They, they had so many files. Some of these loan processors, I know some of them who work at different companies around town and they're processing anywhere from 30 to hundred files a month. Well, if you're doing that, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't get as much detail or the information or stay on top of things. If you, if I've got five files and you're working on 95 other files for the other loan officers, things are going to slip through the cracks. There's no way. Just human error will allow mm-hmm. that to happen. It's it's what makes your,
0: your process really special. I love it. Yeah, thanks. Um, let's pivot a little bit and talk about um, a lot of the buzz that's been this spring is assumable mortgages. Okay. Let's talk about that. And let's talk about Explain to us like what mortgages can be assumed versus not. I mean, obviously, this was really popular in the 80s when people yeah. had 13, 14 percent interest rates, but it's become a trendy thing again when sellers have three, four percent interest rates. And now, you know, a buyer's like, well, heck, yeah, I would love to have that or a 2.75 rate. Heck, yeah, all day long. So what does that look like? How what mortgages can and can't do it? And what does that process look like?
2: Yeah, no great question there. I'm not, you know, I'm not a realtor, so I don't see that side of everything that you guys in the trenches are seeing and how uh, listing agents are trying to, you know, portray that, that. Hey, I've got an assumable loan with qualifications, you know, uh, things of that nature. I mean, the two types of loans that come to my mind that are assumable and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but are going to be an FHA loan, number one, and number two is going to be a VA loan. So that'd be for like a veteran. You know, the caveats with that is FHA loan, if someone has a loan that's say a three and a half percent with an FHA uh, interest rate is if you want to assume that loan, you still have to go through the qualification process to assume that loan. And then it has to be an FHA loan. So you're basically taking over Mm -hmm. the current FHA loan at the current interest rate that the person you're buying the house has and has been paying on. That would be the first thing that for FHA. VA is going to be a little bit more strict with that. So VA loans being assumable by a veteran and a veteran only. You have to be a veteran to assume a VA loan. And again, you go through qualifications just because you're a veteran and you're trying to buy a house from a veteran, you still have to show the qualifications that you can qualify and that you will be able to make the house payments on that VA loan. You have to go through the underwriting process on both FHA and VA I believe. And, um, in order to assume those loans and then, you know, if you qualify is that uh, things go from there and you just take over. But as far as I know, um, I cannot remember in even the last 20 years thinking of any type of a conventional loan that was assumable.
0: Because- I don't know of any either, but I'm just seeing people use it as a marketing strategy, but, I we I we haven't had any clients do it, yeah. But I think it's I think it's just a way to like get looked.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing you got to remember is if you're the listing agent or if you're a buyer's agent, and you know you're reading the listing on the MLS that says that okay, the seller's loan is assumable. If I was there, whether I was their listing agent or a buyer's agent interested in the property, I would want to see the current mortgage note. So I want to see the note of repayment that was signed by the person who took out the mortgage before I solicit that as assumable. Or if I'm a buyer who a uh, listing shows that it is an assumable mortgage, I would want to see that. I mean, you can white out all the personal information about names Or whatever it is on there that you want to white out, but the note is only typically like a three to five page document, and it's going to show the assumability in that right there in the document. It'll tell you whether it is or or is not. Okay. Because I had a friend of mine. Have
0: you ever had anyone do that process? I never have. When even when I was in the mortgage business, I never did anything with assumptions. Did
2: you ever? No, I have never had anybody come to me and say, "Hey." I have a house that's assumable. I want to, you know, assume this mortgage, you know, are, are are you involved with the Jason? How does this work? So I know I never have had anybody do that. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, a marketing tool right now when things uh, are, you know, tough, especially with higher interest rates, because it could easily be that the interest rate may be double right now what the uh, person who has the assumable loan on the listing side, you know, has to offer. It's a huge, huge, huge selling point. Totally.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's more of a marketing tactic than anything. But at the end of the day, I don't feel like people are actually taking advantage of it as much as what maybe someone would think they might be.
2: Right. Well, let me point out one other thing. I, I live in Victoria, Minnesota, and I had a local friend of mine tell me that his neighbor, who I had refinanced, um, back during COVID, like I think it was probably 2020. I don't even think it was 2021. I had given him an interest rate below 3% on a 30-year fixed, And this, this neighbor was going to turn around and put his house up for sale. And I knew I had given this person a conventional loan. And the listing agent was marketing that loan uh, from the sell side as assumable. And I knew for a fact it was not, but it was catching traction, you know, and I would hate to be a buyer who thought, oh, maybe I could assume this person's loan between two and a half and 3% interest rate, you know, when rates are at six or six and a half or seven and then come to find out, oh, actually I can't because their conventional loan from their refinance in 2020 is not assumable.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things I feel like it's sort of buyer beware and you really have to cross your T's and dot your I's before you try to go down that route. And it might, you know, it might be one of that, that old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it might be actually be too good to be true.
2: Yeah. How about this one? What if you say, don't assume it's assumable?
0: (laughs) Nice. That's real punny there, Jason. Thanks. Um. Okay, let's pivot into something, like a couple other random weird questions. This comes up every once in a very blue moon. Um, how about getting financing on, like, mobile homes or modular homes? Okay. Tell our listeners, like, how that all works.
2: Um, if you are trying to go for a purchase of one of those two types of homes, modular or mobile, I currently do not have any lenders who want to go after mobile home financing. Um, the biggest indicator of a mobile home is going to be a red tag about that big, maybe a three by five red tag that is going to be on the outside of one of the corners of the mobile home. It is riveted to the home, usually to the siding. Or something like that, or otherwise there may be uh, something underneath, like they let's say the kitchen sink or one of the closets inside of the uh, home that details out the information about the home being mobile. So I think that none of my lenders want to touch that type of a the type of property because it's they have to turn around and they have to sell this. Loan, you know, to through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. um, And it's not the type of property that my lenders are going for. So I have not done a mobile home financed house since probably 2005.
0: So I'm shocked they're even doing them then.
2: Yeah. And it was not easy back then. (laughs) So I think that, you know, mobile home financing, that's a niche market where. Those people who are selling mobile homes, they have specific banks that want that business. And if you're buying new, you're probably best going through that type of uh, a bank that the, the builder can refer you to. Or if you're buying, trying to buy an existing mobile home, is find a local bank where that's more the norm of that type of a property there, and you may have better luck with that. Okay, good to know. let me let me switch gears real quick. You asked about modular homes. Um, just because you know yeah. my background of not only doing mortgages but at one time doing real estate, also doing appraisals for a couple of years. You know, I have some more of that expertise in my past, you know, uh, running through clients and appraising houses and stuff. Um, Modular homes, those can get done more easily on like a conventional side um, that I've seen and I've done modular home financing. Um, Again, you're not going to have that red tag on the outside or underneath the kitchen sink that designates that as a mobile home. Um, and that's the one thing where people come to me and ask, Hey, can you do financing on this house? I'll look at the listing of the house and I'll say, look for these tags. You know, we got to determine whether it's mobile or modular. If it's modular, I have had success getting, um, modular uh, financing done. And the reason probably I would say this is that if you're buying a modular home, let's say that it's an existing home in the area that maybe say where that modular home is, There needs to be additional comparables out there from an appraisal standpoint that show other modular homes in that area have been sold. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I mean, because there there are some very, very well-built, stick-built modular homes that are placed on a permanent foundation. Okay. That that's what I should point out is one of the big keys there. Is a lot of times the mobile homes will not be on a, a permanent foundation and I cannot do that financing. I think mean, that's more difficult to get done. But a modular home that is on a poured or a block foundation, a permanent foundation, that's where you're going to have success with financing. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. If somebody's got like a really
0: sexy low interest rate, can that be transferred to a different property?
2: The interest rate, are you talking about like if somebody's trying to buy a house? So you're like,
0: I have a three percent yeah, like someone so someone has a current house and they're like, I have a two point seven five interest rate. Can I move that to a different house?
2: Oh. Thanks for the clarification. The answer is no that that interest rate is tied okay. address and borrower specific to that property. Okay.
0: Um what happens when um if someone is buying a home and interest rates either go like up or down and they're in the middle of the loan process with you like how does that work? Like let's say I don't know, let's say some miraculous thing happen. And someone's like in the middle of underwriting, they're like two weeks before closing and interest rates drop a full point. And they're like, well, I don't want 6%. I want 5%. What yeah. happens then?
2: Well, um, I can answer that a couple ways. I'll try to keep this as simple as possible. Um, not all lenders will allow a renegotiation. So renegotiating would be in the instance where um, I lock you to an interest rate of, say, 6%. And, um, you know, a lock is a commitment. People have to realize that, you know, of course, with uh, Americans, they always want to have their cake and eat it too. So they feel like, you know, there's some entitlement there. <laughs> what? You yeah, do so let, me, let me touch on the entitlement uh, conversation here. People feel like they sh- they are entitled to a lower interest rate. Even though they told me to lock their rate in on a specific day and they understand that if rates go up or if rates go down, I cannot renegotiate their interest rate. So that's generally the my stance on this. Um, one of my top lenders, um, they do not have a renegotiation process. Um, for if rates go down, if rates go up, obviously never, nobody ever calls me and says, Hey, I heard rates, you know, went from 6% to uh, 7%. I want that higher rate. It's always that they want the lower interest rate. And so with one of my top lenders, they do not renegotiate. A lock is a lock and a lock is a commitment. People have to understand that. I do have another, my, another one of my top uh, lenders that does have a renegotiation policy. And what theirs is, I believe if I'm saying this correctly, is that the interest rate has to move by at least a minimum of a quarter percent down from the original locked interest rate. Um, it can go down to a max of three-eighths of a percent less than the original lock, and then there is a half a percent hit to the new pricing when I go back and look at renegotiating. So the renegotiation is not free. You know, people need to understand that typically. So it's not a cost that you pay out of your pocket. It's just a renegotiation, half a point pricing loan hit that I have to look at the new lower interest rate when it comes to uh, possibly, uh, you know, looking at relocking you at a lower interest rate. So what you're saying
0: is with some lenders, it's possible and some not.
2: Yes, I would never guarantee it. I mean, you could probably err on the safe side and just think, you know, a lock is a commitment and if rates go up or rates go down, you got to be happy with that interest rate because I'm not going to ever hold a gun to anyone's head and tell you that you have to lock. I am always of the uh, stance of if you lock it, if you love it, you lock it. How about that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So one thing that we're seeing a lot with our team this spring is sellers that um, have the so sellers, they're like they don't have their house on the market yet, but they have the ability to purchase their new home non contingent, meaning they don't have to sell their home in order to buy their new home. But they have a lot of equity tied up in that first house. So they, you know, they buy the new house. And then usually we're sort of selling the other house kind of at the same time. But if the closings don't line up and then they say, well, I want to take 100 grand from my old house and then pay down my mortgage on my new house. What does that look like? Talk us through that and the steps for that and why that could be important to somebody.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's very important. I think it's really critical here in the last like two or three years that people understand that they don't have to sell their existing home if they can qualify to go non-contingent and they can qualify for both house payments plus their student loans and their car payments and their credit card minimum monthlies. That's fantastic. That's somebody who's in a great financial position um, that you don't have to sell that house. That so you can get some of that equity out with a, a couple ways. Number one is you could take out like a second mortgage if you wanted to tap into that. Well, that costs money and that takes time. A lot of times we don't have the time to go through the underwriting process when it comes to that. But the process that it, I think all my lenders allow is what's called a recast, R-E-C-A-S-T. You can buy your new house, non-contingent, close on that new house. Maybe you only put 5% down, and then after you sell your old house, um, that like Beth, you said, is that you have it under, you know, the process of selling into anyways, maybe you even have it under contract and you're going to close in the sale of your existing home a week or two or three weeks after you purchase the new home. Then when you get the proceeds from the, uh, sale of your old home, you contact your loan servicer and say, Hey, I would like to take care of this recast process. You don't have to go back through underwriting. They have a very fine-tuned step process of what you need to do about five different things. And I think it only costs you typically about $250 to have your loan recast. So remember with the recast also- And explain exactly what that means. So the recast, yes, is that specifically, um, if you buy a house, you take out a loan for $300,000 at 30 years at say 6%. You're going to have a certain principal and interest on that loan for the life of the loan for 30 years. So if you go through the recast process and now that you are bringing, you send a check to the loan servicer, say for $100,000, you're all that you're reducing is the principal and interest amount that you're going to pay monthly. So instead of you know having a $300,000 loan, you give the loan servicer a check or you wire them the money for $100,000. Now you go from 300 to 200. It's still amortized over 30 years, and then the interest rate does not change. That's a key factor there. People have asked me, well, does the interest rate change or do I, you know, do go through underwriting? No. All that changes is the loan amount changes, the and uh, your principal and interest changes for 250 bucks. You take out a lot of stress in your life.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if you had, and this just, this question just popped in my head. So, if you had mortgage insurance and you put enough money down after you sold your house where now you were under, um, you 100%. had like less than an 80% loan to value, could you drop your PMI right away, your mortgage insurance? 100% yes. That's
2: awesome. Yep. So, you could start out. I don't you know if have- buyers
0: really like know about that
2: yeah, you may only have a, you may only make even one payment of mortgage insurance. I don't think there's a minimum of how many how long you have to keep that loan um, you know before you can do the recast. Um, I think that you know talk to your loan servicer after you buy your new house. Don't talk to you know the mortgage person, talk to the title company. They're not going to know specifically. Um, talk to the loan servicing department of the lender you'll be making payments to. And they can describe how that works. That's so
0: cool. It's so shocking. um, Like when I'm meeting with sellers and after, you know, they've talked to you and gotten pre-qualified to buy their next house. It's so shocking to me that so many of them outside of talking to you and I, They don't even know, they've never heard of it before. They don't even know it was an option. Because I think most people know that they can just like write a big check to the mortgage company and that there's no prepayment penalties anymore. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can make a big lump payment, then get a lower house payment every month is super attractive. I think people are like, oh, wow, I didn't, I had no idea that's even an option.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It, it's it's something that, you know, you really didn't hear about that so much until the last, I don't know, four or five years or less.
0: Yeah, I would say, I, I don't know, I feel like it's become super popular in maybe like the last two years. Now everybody's mm-hmm. talking about it. And maybe the fact that because everybody has so much equity in their homes right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's, that it's, could be. it's it's a wonderful thing to have so much equity in your house. But as you and I both know, Beth, there's only two ways to tap into that equity. is One is refinance and two is to sell the house. And if you're not selling before yeah. you're buying, you may have to do that one extra step um, you know, to get your loan recast. Because if you don't go through the recast process and you just send the bank $100,000 to go towards your loan, All it's going to do is reduce the uh, principal balance. It's not going to change your monthly payment because you didn't request the recast. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And maybe that's not important to some people, but I feel like, uh, you know, younger families and they're raising kids and like doing the thing. I feel like having a lower house payment every month would be really advantageous for a lot of
2: those buyers. Right. Right. Well, especially with, uh, Beth as. uh, you and I keep getting older and older and better like a fine wine is that our buyers seem to a lot of them (laughs) getting younger and younger. Am I right?
0: Yeah. It's crazy. You know, we've had, especially in the last few years, you and I have had a lot of clients that are like early to mid twenties. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's incredible that these buyers are getting into the market now because I Mm -hmm. think of like, they're just going to use real estate as a stepping stone Start out with that little house and eventually, you know, you buy acreage or build your dream house or whatever that looks like. It's so smart that these young buyers are getting into the game when they are.
2: Yeah, they're building equity and they're building wealth, you know, in a very, very, you know, typically a wise investment. You know, uh, hopefully we just continue to see, uh, you know, home prices go up at a steady pace. And, you know, you're not going to lose out on that. I mean, I don't think overall, historically, you're going to lose out on investing in real estate. Would you agree?
0: Oh, yeah. No, it's one of the it's one of the most solid investments out there. But I would say, you know, every once in a while you can, uh, you know, flip a property and have it be a short game. But you really have to know what you're doing there. Um, But more more often than not, real estate's a long game. So if you put your money there and invest it and you're taking care of your property and paying down your mortgage every month, it's like a forced savings plan. It's so smart. Yeah, definitely. What about those buyers or the, actually those sellers that have that starter home with an awesome interest rate, like the 2.75 interest rate. And now they're wanting to buy their next home, but they're like, Oh, I don't want to give up this house with this really awesome interest rate. And they say, okay. Beth, I want to keep this first property as an investment property, and then I want to go buy my next property. How yep. do the logistics of that work out?
2: Um, it's, it's really, really simple. It's, uh, it's typically I can take care of any questions with an underwriter on what's going to happen with the current real estate-owned property. Um, they want to know that. Like If you are going to take your townhome that you bought when you were single that you and your family have started to outgrow and you're going to be buying a, a single family that you're going to hopefully live in for you know a number of years as your family grows. Um, you keep that townhome and you can turn that into a rental property and you don't have to refinance. You don't have to do anything with that. Um, that's typically the way it is. I might have a letter of explanation that is filled out by the buyer or buyers of the new home and uh, nothing changes
0: So, but like from a qualification standpoint, do then you have to calculate the payment on this townhouse and the new house, or is talk through that a little bit?
2: Yeah, that that gets a a different level of detail. There are two ways typically that uh, it can happen is that, for example, if you own a townhome or a condo in Bloomington and you want to buy a house in, like, let's say, Minnetonka, is that if you qualify for the new house payment? Plus the old payment, um, you you can qualify for everything there, and then no big deal on that. But if you don't qualify for both house payments, and you need some rental income from the uh, departure residence, you know the home in Bloomington that you're um, that you're trying to hold on to. Also, you can uh, there's ways to get around uh, getting some income credit from that with a signed lease. Um, prior to going to closing and we can offset some of that uh, monthly payment.
0: So then you don't necessarily have to like be paying both the house payments, a lender there there's, there's options. There, you're saying. there are options.
2: Yes. Yeah. And it's good to have those options because that's, that's so good. yeah, it's, I've seen that. I know you and I have some clients that have got a place in St. Paul. And in the past, They've thought, oh, well, we're going to buy a new home because we now have two kids and we're going to turn our existing condo into a rental. So I went through all the underwriting guidelines. I found out exactly what we needed to do that in order to make that happen so we could offset that $2,000 a month condo payment you know, while they were t- trying to buy a bigger house, a single family. And um, it's, an, it's an easy process to get done. And I mean, it's just... Documentation and paper trail is the name of the game.
0: What I love about that also is that it's a great way to build your wealth portfolio too. It's like you have this primo property that's probably going to be really easy to rent, and you can potentially cash flow it because you have such a low interest rate. And so that you know, you're just like building mm-hmm. wealth. And every month that your tenants in there paying your mortgage for you, yep. um, you're making more money. You're building more, uh, more financial, well, you're, you're fixing your financial well-being, And I think that is such a really cool tool. Carrie on our team had recently sent out an email and she's like regrets in life. I don't have many, but my one regret is that they sold when they had moved to their single family house, just, you know, right down the street from where their original young married townhouse was, they kept it as rental property for several years and then they ended up selling it. And she's like, if only I had a crystal ball to see like what things would have done and how hot the rental market would have stayed or it was staying. She's like, we would not have sold that property. She's like, now I'm kicking myself. And so that's just a good reminder to people. And every time I meet with a seller, I'm like, here's all your options. Doesn't always have to be selling. I mean, obviously I love when people sell because then I, you know, make more money. But at the end of the day, it really needs to be about like, I have a fiduciary responsibility to my client to make sure that I'm working on their best behalf. So I need to present all the options, you know, like yeah, maybe keeping this property and renting it out is an option. That's really great for people.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's great to have all those options out there. Totally.
0: Okay. So like, this was a super awesome conversation with you, Jason. Like I feel, you know, this is, you and I are in the trenches. You and I are talking you know, every single week we're checking in and talking about clients that we're working together with and, you know, just talking about the market in general. Um, and I, I'm feeling encouraged. And I one of the reasons I love working with you is that you're like glass half full guy. Yeah. And I think the market's hot and I think the market is off to a really great start this spring. What do you think?
2: I think it definitely is. And I'm, I'm very optimistic, especially coming out of uh, the winter months of the winter months were definitely slower for me than I was anticipating, but I am busier right now than I have been yet, you know, four plus months into this year. So that's very encouraging for me to have a a Mm -hmm. full rack of files here, right to the left of my computer. Um, I mean, that's great. And these are buyers buying in Minnesota who are a lot of them are first time home buyers. Um, that are, some of them are getting into multiple offers and winning, some of them are not, some of them are having uh, been able to get some closing costs paid by the seller, uh, some haven't. Um, yeah, it just seems you know, it kind of ebbs and flows with the amount of pre-approval letters that I write. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, such and such referred me to you, I need to get pre-approved, I can't wait to get that conversation going because I get to tell them about me. I get to tell them about the loan process. And it is an appointment that I get to add to my calendar that helps give me structure outside of, you know, sports and, uh, you know, hanging out with my wife and hanging out with the kids and going to the fire department. I love those uh, those meetings. I had one yesterday afternoon at 430 and I had already talked to this girl two weeks before. She had already given me her pay stubs, um, her W 2s. So I was looking at her commissioned income. I already had that all figured out. And, um, you know, it, it just makes me feel good to be able to pre approve somebody in an hour or less to buy a home, whether it's their first home or an investment property mm-hmm. or their, their next home that they're going to own or occupy. It's a quick and easy process that I love to have multiple, you know, pre-approval dates uh, appointments on my calendar each week. I look forward to those. That's one of the big highlights of my week. Otherwise, you know, going through underwriting. Underwriting seems to be very, very fast right now. I know that uh, you know there's a lot of underwriters working for a lot of the big wholesale lenders that I uh, send loans to. So they're they're very well staffed. Those lenders are really looking for ways to help the consumers, Um, looking for ways to help me to help the consumers also. Um, Credit repair is one thing that uh, one of my lenders has been able to offer, uh, free credit repair service. So if you've got a credit score under a 750, I can take your credit report, send it to their, upload it to their secure portal, and they will go through it. They have their people there who will go over the credit report and see, is there ways that we could help suggest to help improve your credit scores to get you lower interest rates when it comes time to lock in and buy your next house. Um, So Wait, underwriting. That's
0: a hella awesome offer. Yeah. That's so freaking cool, Jason, that yeah. they're, they offer that. You, I don't even know if you and I've ever talked about that. It's fabulous.
2: Right, right. I, you know, knock on wood here. I do get a lot of good credit clients that, that don't need that. Um, or they, they're just right right on the border of having like excellent credit and they don't really need a lot of credit counseling or handholding there. But one other thing that's really encouraging here, Beth, is I'll tell you is that you know there's a program out there right now um, that not all lenders have, um, but one of my lenders has a grant program. And I know I've put it out there to you and to some of your team members that, hey, look, I've got three first-time home buyers right now that are taking advantage of free grant money. So it is an income-based program. And for me to actually have three buyers right now in underwriting that are taking advantage of this free money um, through the, what's called the Home Preservation Foundation, it's amazing. It is amazing. It's either, depending on your income, you will receive... Um, $2,500 or half of that at $1,250. And you go through a counseling service, there is a $99 fee um, that you do have to pay for during the counseling process, but then it becomes free money. This isn't like a down payment assistant program through the uh, county that gives you money towards closing costs or down payment. This is just free money and i've got 3 of those going right now. i think this program started last summer. i don't know how long the funds will be there, but it is a great tool and i'm very very excited to have, you know, clients that are taking advantages of this right now. and it's it's just amazing. it hasn't been there forever. i don't know how long it'll be there, but hopefully before it goes away my lender will let me know as the funds they're seeing as they're going to dry up.
0: Yeah, a lot of times buyers, first-time home buyers they're ask all the questions like, Oh, I want a first time homebuyer program. Well, those down payment assistance programs, they're great and there definitely is a time and place for them, but those are loans that you have to pay back. Right. And they're not, you know, every once in a while there'll be a forgivable type scenario, but generally speaking, those are ones you have to pay back. Um, but like the grant money is great in that you don't ever have to pay that back. It truly is a grant. And all you have to do is sit through what, like a 90 minute first time homebuyer class or something like that. I and mean, learning stuff that an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Hour. Of learning stuff that you need to know anyways about homeownership.
2: Yeah. yeah. it's Great. Yeah. Of, of the three clients right now that I'm working with, I have asked each of them, have you found that, that counseling class, um, beneficial? And two out of the three have said, yes, it was very, very beneficial. The one that did not, um, think it was as beneficial was someone I can tell you that had already self educated himself, you know, just through the internet or talking to people like me or talking to uh, his parents or whoever it was. He had a lot of advice ahead of time and knew really had a good head on his shoulders prior to um, obtaining a loan. But the other two have said, yeah, it was great. I didn't feel like it was a waste of my time and I feel much more prepared to buy a house based off of that class and all the information that, uh, you know, Jason, you have provided through the underwriting process. That's awesome.
0: That's so awesome. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of good, really good wins happening out there in the marketplace right now. Yeah. And like partnering with an awesome lender. That's one of the reasons our team loves partnering with you is that the left hand's always telling the right hand what's happening. Our clients are all getting serviced at a super high level and, like we're winning in these multiple offer situations and our clients are getting into homes with low interest rates, as low as of interest rates as they can get out there right now. And it's, I feel like it's a whole bunch of good things. So like all these naysayers are like, Oh, the market's terrible. I just have not drunk that Kool-Aid and I have no intentions of drinking that Kool-Aid. And I know you aren't either.
2: Yeah. No, I think that uh, it's, you know, both for you and I, I mean, we love what we do and we like to convey that to others around us and surround ourselves with good, positive people um, that, uh, you know, are willing to work seven days a week, you know, depending on, you know, what the circumstances are for these buyers and whatever it takes to get these people into these houses and get these offers accepted, get them through home inspection, get them through underwriting without any hitches and get them to the closing table with no surprises is the name of the game. Absolutely.
0: I feel like you're like mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. I got a well, highlighter. Jason, like this, <laughs> you got a highlighter drop. This was such yeah. a good up informational episode. You know, I mean, most of the stuff is stuff that I already know, but like I, lear- I actually learned something new today. Um and I hope that all of our listeners learned something new today too. So Jason, tell us where um, our listeners can find you. What are like social handles and all that good stuff?
2: Yeah. Um, usually, uh, like I have a lot of people who reach out to me, who get referred to me um, by their realtor. They will say, hey, uh, I got your name from such and such. And, um, you know, I, I need to look at buying a house I want to uh, you know, connect with you. Please let me know the next steps. I get that uh, next step piece quite often. So I've got a, a very well-crafted reply email to that. And again, I'm looking forward to so much setting up that uh, verbal meeting where we're talking over the phone. We don't need to meet uh, face-to-face anymore. Um, I mean, I like to be efficient as I work through the process of getting someone pre-approved. I can do that over the phone. Um, I will do face-to-face meetings if necessary, but uh, 99% of the time, everything can happen over the phone. So whether it's you could just email me or you uh, people will call me or text me. Again, I like to say seven days a week. I try to make my hours from eight in the morning to eight at night, seven days a week. I don't think there's everybody that uh, does my job, makes themselves available you know, in that kind of a capacity. Um, and it's working out very well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess on, on Facebook will also be another one right there. I'm not on the gram. So sorry, Beth, uh, you're not going to catch me there. In, uh, <laughs> and are you
0: JMT mortgage?
2: <laughs> yeah. So are you
0: JMT mortgage on Facebook?
2: Um, I do have a JMT mortgage fa- page. Yes. And obviously a personal page, Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say that even on this, um, I'll, can I throw out my phone number right now is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Sure. And uh, that number, you know, to reach me by cell, uh, whether it's a phone call or text message is 612-964-8898. Um, call text there. Um, you can email me at, uh, Jason at J M T Um, That'd be the other way of getting a hold of me and we can take the process from there and get that pre-approval process started because you can't write an offer without uh, a pre-approval letter and Beth doesn't like showing you homes without, you know, you being fully (laughs) pre-approved.
0: True story. True story.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah.
0: Thanks Jason for being here today. Yeah. Thank you. And with that, until next time, bus Bench babes, keep your face off a of bus bench and keep being the badass boss babes that you are.
1: Okay, girls, are you feeling as inspired as we are? We're over here cheering you on because you just finished another episode of the Girl Get Your Face Off a Bus Bench podcast. If you want more, head
0: over to Girl Get Your Face Off for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five star review. They mean the world to us and they're what keep us going.
1: Girl, thanks for being here.